We continue today our study through the book of Hosea. This is our third sermon in a series entitled, God's Unfaithful Wife. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, They are 12 minor prophets, and they're called this way not because their importance was minor, but because they were shorter compared to such books as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel. The minor prophets are simply shorter books which conclude the Old Testament, and Hosea is the first in this last section of the Old Testament. Hosea is a great introduction to the minor prophets because it calls people to return to the Lord. The primary purpose of the prophets was not to foretell the future, but to call people to return to God by following the commands God revealed in the past. The prophetic word of Hosea afflicts the comfortable who think they're doing well spiritually. But the prophetic word also comforts the afflicted, those who felt convicted by God's word, those who felt the weight of God's upcoming judgment, and those who desired to correct their lives in light of God's word. For such people, and only for such people, the prophet Hosea had a word of comfort. The job of the prophets was often very difficult because they had to speak for God many times against the people, against their sins, against their schemes and plans, against their ungodly hopes. Who would like to have a job in which the majority of the duties involved confrontation? Well, most of the prophets were called to this task. Sometimes the confrontations were against gross sins, such as murder or sexual sins or idolatry. But other times, the prophetic word confronted people's religious practices and their religious traditions, if I would call their church services. And in some ways, This is the most difficult confrontation, even today. In today's message, we will see how Hosea brings a confrontation against people's repentance. Because even though it appeared a good thing, even though repentance appeared a good thing, it was a fake repentance. It was a false repentance. It was just a pragmatic repentance. So the theme of my sermon this morning is pragmatic repentance. I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of Hosea, chapter 6. We're reading from the beginning of chapter 6 all the way to the end of chapter 8. Hosea, chapter 6, all the way to chapter 8. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 786. 786 the book of Hosea. Here's the word of the Lord for our hearts and for our congregation this morning. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will rise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I unhewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests bent together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thieves breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face, but their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They're all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to steer the fire from kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On that day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of the wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In, their mor in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, 
Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would, re- they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts. Let's bow our heads in prayer before him. Father, we do thank you that even in judgment, you love us. Even when you announce destruction, it is for the sake of returning us back to you because of your compassion for us. Father, I pray that you would let this word speak to us and to our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, before we get into chapter 6, let's review what happened in the first five verses of the book of Hosea. The first three chapters uh, give us a picture of Hosea's family. A husband, a faithful priest, a prophet of the Lord, called to marry an adulterous prostitute wife, and then children born of unfaithfulness. Yet God calls his prophet to continue to love his wife again and again and again. And God even calls his prophet to love her again in chapter 3, and the prophet buys out his wife once again. All this, all this picture of a marriage that was on the rocks is really a picture of the relationship between God and his people. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we saw Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness exposed and judged. And as we saw that the people whom God held accountable for Israel's pitiful spiritual state, the people who God held accountable in a special way for their spiritual unfaithfulness were the priests, were the spiritual people, were the spiritual leaders of the nation. And we saw how chapter 5 ended with a picture of judgment upon the whole nation. Yes, the priests were responsible but the whole nation was guilty before God for their unfaithfulness. Look at verse 14 in chapter 5. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Now by this picture, God is not only turning away from his land, but he is actually identifying himself as the author of the upcoming destruction. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. In other words, God is behind the armies that will invade the northern kingdom and take them into exile. Now, this is a grim picture of judgment at the end of chapter 5. Yet these are not the last words of chapter 5. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. I will return again to my place. God will come back. Now, we don't know when, and how. But in the meantime, between God's departure and His return, God desires for His people to return to Him because they have departed from the Lord. In the book, in this book, God wants His people, not the pagans, but His people, to acknowledge their guilt and seek God's face in their distress. Now, friends, let me pause here for a moment. Some of you may have a hard time understanding the picture of a God who stands in judgment against his people. And if you don't have this difficulty, you know others who do. The reason for this difficulty is not due to God. 
but due to our skewed view of love. We, in the 21st century, equate love with non-confrontation. We think of love as acceptance without demands. This is not the way God loves us. God's judgment of his people is for the purpose of leading them back to him. God loves his people too much to let them worship something other than God. God loves his people too much to let them worship something other than God. So God has to physically take them out of the land in order to bring their hearts back to him. God has to bring a huge tragedy over them in order to wake them up to their true spiritual condition so that in their distress they may call upon the Lord. This is how chapter 5 ends. With a picture of God's judgment against his people, but also with an expectation that his people will seek him once again in their distress. With this background in mind, we now approach chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins with a glimpse of hope. Chapter 6 begins with a glimpse of hope. Come, let us return to the Lord. Now, the word return is a very important word in the book of Hosea. It is used about 21 times, and it is the word that repairs the broken relationship between Hosea and his wife. But more importantly, it is the word that repairs the broken relationship between God and his unfaithful wife. Most importantly, this word is the one, is the one word that best defines the notion of biblical repentance. Return to the Lord. Now here's a biblical definition or a definition of biblical repentance in light of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Repentance is not the mere acknowledgement that we have sinned and done that which is evil in God's sight. Let me repeat that again. Repentance is not the mere acknowledgement that we have sinned and done that which is evil in God's sight. Repentance is much more than acknowledgement and confession. Repentance is a positive turning away from sin to God in Christ. Or better, another way of saying it, is a turning to God through Christ away from sin. A turning to God through Christ away from sin. And this is how chapter 6 is beginning with a call to repentance. Now it is unclear who, spe who the speaker of these words is. And there are two options. Is it Hosea speaking on behalf of God, admonishing the people to repent? That's one possibility. A second possibility is that these words might be the words of Israel responding to what God said in chapter 5 to the upcoming judgment. They repent and want to seek the Lord. That's another possibility. We don't really know which of these is is the case. But whether these words belong to Hosea or to Israel, whether they represent God calling the people to repent or, or whether they represent Israel and their commitment to repent, they include a few key points for any call for repentance. Look at these words, verse 3 verses. These verses acknowledge that the destruction they experienced or will experience was God's act of chastisement for the purpose of healing them. Look at verse 1. For he has torn us. Why? That he may heal us. He has torn us so that he may heal us. Friends, God's ultimate purpose with his people is to heal them of their idolatries, even if he has to do some tearing in the process. A heart that is cleansed of idolatries is more important to God than a life free of troubles. So a true repentance learns to rejoice in the outcome of the chastisement, namely a heart healed 
from idolatries. He has torn us that he may heal us. And in verse 2, we get another purpose of repentance. The hope of being revived and brought back to life is clearly stated with the explicit purpose that we may live before him. In other words, the purpose of repenting and the hope of being restored is so that we may live our lives before the Lord, to be an open book before him, hiding nothing and being ashamed of nothing. That's the purpose of repentance. And then verse 3 ends with a hopeful picture by calling people to that which they were accused of lacking. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. In other words, the knowledge of God is the greatest need of God's people. Remember what was said in chapter 4? People perish because there is no knowledge. So now, returning to the Lord, repenting, seeking His face is an invitation to know the Lord in a fresh and new way. This will always accompany to repentance a renewed zeal for the knowledge of God. My friend, do these things characterize you today? So the call to repentance includes an acknowledgement of God's hand in the chastisement of, of, of His people. It includes a desire for healing the heart, a desire for living before God, and a desire to know the Lord. These are the this is the, the component. These are the components of a, of a true repentant heart. Now, all this sounds very hopeful until we get to chapter to verse four of chapter six. All this call to repentance, whether it's God calling Israel or Israel committing themselves to do this, all this hope is shattered when we start reading verse four, and this is a picture of a sham repentance, of a pragmatic repentance, of a false repentance. Regardless of who spoke in the first three verses of chapter 6, whether it was Israel's apparent desire to repent or Hosea's words of calling the nation to repent, first four give us a sad nature of Israel's repentance. Now, this should give us a caution. Before we, before we unpack this false repentance, this should give us a caution. Let me give you the caution. Just because someone claims they repent does not mean they really do it. Just because someone claims they repent does not mean it is a true repentance. Now, the more challenging point is that God gives us some indications of what counts as true or fake repentance. And we are called to discern and differentiate between them. And we're called to confront those who engage in false repentance. Now, some people object to the idea that we should engage in such confrontations. I told you, it's not fun to confront people. And some people don't like that. They say, we should not. They say, it's none of our business to do so. Or they say, let God handle it. We'll just let, I hear this reason so often. We'll just let God handle it. We should not do it. But friends, such objections are very foreign to the Bible. And let me answer the second objection. God, let, let God handle it. God will handle it in the day of judgment. But in that day, it will be way too late. And out of love, God wants to give these people a, a compassionate warning to do something about it before it's too late. So when, when we hear this objection, you know what, I'm not going to get involved to discern whether this is true or false repentance. I'll just let God handle it. You're actually making the most unloving thing for that person. You're letting them stay deceived in their spiritual self-deception. Friends, it is not fun. It is not easy. It was not easy for Hosea to do this. It is not easy for the church to do this. But it is a task that God has given us so that we may prepare people for that day of judgment. God, in His graciousness, provides these warning signs to be given so false repenters may wake up. And God has given this responsibility to the church to ensure that those who claim to be 
God's followers do walk the talk. And God has given the church a responsibility to warn these members who might be self-deceived. Now let's go back to Hosea, and then we're going to go into the New Testament as well to see that this is not just a part in Hosea. This is, this is happening in the New Testament also. But in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, look at what God says. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? And, and picture the image of Israel's love. Your love is like a morning cloud. Or another picture, your love is like the dew that goes early away. That was, early, that was Israel's love. What we see from, chapter, from verse 4 in chapter 6 all the way to the end of chapter 8 are seven signs of false repentance. Seven signs of false repentance. And I want us to explore these so that we may be able to be equipped to discern true from false repentance. In verse 4, the first example, the first characteristic of a false repentance is a short-lived renewal of affections. Affections that are short-lived. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? The problem is with Israel is not that they completely lack love for God. Notice, they do have love for God, but it's short-lived. People may repent, but only for a short season. Have you seen him? Do you keep track of how long you keep your commitments to God? True repentance, dear friends, lasts. True repentance lasts. True repentance will bring long-lasting fruit. It will not be like the rocky soil that brings immediate fruit, but then it withers. It will persevere to the end. That's the first sign of true or false. That's the first sign of false repentance. It's a short-lived renewal of affections. The second characteristic of a false repentance is repenting on our own terms, not God's terms. Repenting on our own terms, not God's terms. Look at verse 6 in chapter 6. God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now this is such a key feature of Israel's false repentance that it shows up again in chapter 8, verse 13. God says again, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept it. In this category, people are happy to continue to play the, the religion game, to continue to bring sacrifices as a sign of their repentance. They were not willing, however, to change in the ways that God asked them to, of loving God and knowing God. Friends, false repentance is the repentance that we do on our own terms, not on God's terms. Have you seen people who say, okay, 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 I repent, but I won't do that. I will repent in the way I consider appropriate. Have you heard people say that? Friends, there is no repentance in that situation. True repentance involves a submission to God's will in the smallest details of repentance. True repentance has no demands on how it should be expressed. Repenting on our own terms, not God's terms. That's a second sign of a false repentance. A third sign of a false repentance is partial repentance. Partial repentance. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. When I would heal Israel... The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. Now, apparently here, there's a, a, a bit of hope. God says, when I would heal Israel, apparently Israel's repentance was only partial, only over something, so that when God was going to start the healing process, more evil is discovered. Friends, we need to be 
careful and guard against selective repentance. We are okay to repent against those things that we, that we are okay to repent of. But don't bring that into other issues of our lives. This is selective repentance. This is salad bar repentance. You pick and choose what you really want to clean up, but not the rest, not the whole. People are tempted to repent of lesser evils in order to show they repented. But deep down, they are hiding deeper issues and refuse to repent of them. A true repentance instead is that which has nothing to hide from God. It is a repentance that turns us to, li to live like an open book. Everything is fair game. That's a third sign of, of false repentance, partial repentance. A fourth sign of false repentance is assuming a blanket forgiveness. Assuming a blanket forgiveness. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. But they do not consider that I remember all their evils. In other words, these people hid some sins. They, they, they repented of some, but not all, because they probably thought God won't bother about all these things. I'll just, I'll just repent of some, and then the rest God won't bother. So they assume a blanket forgiveness. They assume God will take care of the package, but they're unwilling to repent of everything. The reason why they only engage in partial repentance is because, again, they assumed too much of God. They assumed that God won't bother with the rest. They didn't think that God would be bothered by all their sins. So they said, oh, God will forgive us. Apparently, according to God, this assumption was pretty wrong. And this brings us to the, second, to the, to the um, fourth part or fourth characteristic of, of true repentance. I'm sorry, of, of false repentance, assuming a blank forgiveness. True repentance brings no demands for forgiveness. If anything, true repentance disarms us of any pretensions of forgiveness before a holy and righteous God and arms us with a hunger for God's mercy and a commitment to change all our sinful ways. assuming a blanket forgiveness. A fifth characteristic of false repentance. Insincere cries. Insincere cries. Look at verse 14 in chapter 7. They do not cry to me from the heart. Actually, their cry is not even motivated by the fact that they dishonor the Lord. Look again at verse 14 to see why they cry. They wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. In other words, they cry not because they are dishonoring the Lord, but because they no longer have grain and wine, because they no longer have material blessings. In other words, these people repent only because they're caught, and now it hurts them. Such people repent not because they see how their actions hurt God, but only because it hurts them. And their cries are only for their pitiful state, not for God's honor. And this is false repentance. True repentance, instead, comes when we realize that our sins have affected God's fame first and foremost. So our cries are directed first toward God, desiring to restore the display of God's glory through our lives. Do you remember the prodigal son? When he came to his father, when he returned to his father, his first, word, his first words were, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. When we realize that our, our, our sins are not hurtful just because we have been caught, our sins are hurtful because it hurts the honor of God. So a fifth sign of false repentance is insincere cries. You cry. People are getting very emotional, but for the wrong motivations. 
Then number six, a, a sixth characteristic of true repentance. They made changes, but they're not God-centered. Look at verse 16 in chapter 7. They return, but not upward. In other words, they make changes in their lives, but they don't do it toward God. This sign goes hand-in-hand hand with the previous one. It refers to people who are willing to change, but not for the sake of God, but for their own sake. Now, a way to test this, a way to, to test this characteristic is to see if such people make demands of forgiveness and immediate restoration. People repent, or people who repent but want immediate restoration and demand that people should forgive them, and if they don't, they get very accusatory. Have you seen those? That is a pretty unfailing sign of a, fail, of a false repentance. When you repent and demand forgiveness right away, right back, you're doing it all for yourself. There's no humbleness. There's no humility there. There's no time for, to mourn for that sin. You just demand everything to be restored right away. False repentance, insincere cries, making changes but not for God, not towards God. True repentance, dear friends, is the attitude of the prodigal son who returned to his father yet no longer demanding the status of a son, but being satisfied to remain a servant all his life. Now, God did give him the status of a son back, but it was not demanded, and that's a big difference. And then there's a, final, there's a final sign that in this passage we see a false repentance. There are many, many other signs of false repentance. Uh, if you really want to know more about this, a wonderful book is Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. He spends about 300 pages distinguishing between true and false repentance. If you really want to get into this subject, Jonathan Edwards' uh, Religious Affections is a wonderful resource. But back to Hosea, the seventh characteristic of false repentance is prideful confidence. Prideful confidence. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Now this is a bit ironic. With everything we've read so far in the book of Hosea, when chapter 1 through 5 it was clearly laid out that people lack the knowledge of the Lord. God says that very clearly. And here's the people of God saying, Lord, we Israel, your people, we know you. Their actions showed very clearly that they do not know the Lord, even though their self-image was much higher than what they, it should have been. False repenters, friends, false repenters will have a high view of their knowledge of the Lord. We need to be careful about that. False repenters will have a high view of their knowledge of the Lord. They will feel pride in the fact that they know God. False repenters are not characterized by humbleness. They fail to, to know God well enough, a failure which was evident by their sinful life, yet they cover their failure to know God by a boastful pride and, and false assurance that they know the Lord. Or, even worse, uh, because they may say, I'm a Baptist. It's not funny. Because there are some people who actually live that out. And try to confront them gently, compassionately. And there you go. It is done. Now, because of these attempts to repent were fake in the life of Israel... God declares in chapter 8, verse 13, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return, not to the Lord, but to Egypt. They shall return to Egypt. Now, this is huge. This is huge. If you're a Jew, this is huge to hear during Hosea's time. Because Israel's greatest event in its history has been the exodus from Egypt. And now God says to his own people, I am undoing the exodus. 
you will return to slavery. Why? Because false repentance does not work. Now, these were the ways in which Israel's attempt to, to repent failed. It failed not because God was unfaithful, but because through, his, through this false repentance, Israel tried to manipulate God. But friends, this is not the only time in Israel's experience in history when they tried to manipulate God. When, when the, the religious leaders tried to manipulate God or engage in false repentance. In the Gospels, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance. And we're told that many in Israel were coming out to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. But John the Baptist noticed a group of people who were in a similar danger of pragmatic or false repentance. And here's what John the Baptist do. He said, oh great, more baptisms. I can report it to the SBC. More baptisms. No, that's not what John the Baptist did. He looked as, at a, a group of people in the crowd who were coming to be baptized, and he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So instead of rejoicing in a great number of baptisms, John the Baptist was warning people against pragmatic repentance, against false repentance. How about us? Do we dare to have the same prophetic boldness to warn people against false repentance? And what does repentance look like for us? Repentance before God is surrendering to Him all our desires including our desire to control our own life. Biblical repentance is brokenness before Him, an earnest seeking after God with no conditions, with no demands, with no alternative motives other than to restore the honor of God which our lives have defamed. That's true repentance. Now, the call to repentance was given not only to individuals in Israel, it was given to the whole nation. And the same call to repentance was given in the New Testament. Not only John the Baptist gave it to individuals, but we see in the book of Revelation. Churches, entire churches, whole churches called to repent. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the church in Ephesus is addressed with the following words. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The church in Pergamum is addressed with these words, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The church in Laodicea is addressed with these words. Hear, hear this. Those whom I love, I reprove, and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now in each of, each of these cases, there were specific acts they should have forsaken. The church in Ephesus became complacent and neglected the works of love she had at the beginning of her faith. And God calls her to repent of that complacency. The church in Pergamum failed to excommunicate false Christians. And God says, Take them out. If not, I will come and war against them with a word of my mouth. And the church in Laodicea failed to rely on the Lord's resources and instead became self-sufficient in themselves. They looked at what they had. And this was one of Israel's sins in Hosea's time. Judah was proud of her cities, of her fortified cities, and God says, I will bring judgment upon them. Members of Parkios, I wonder, what are the things God wants us to repent of as a congregation? I hear occasionally some members say, we have everything we need in order to grow, yet we're not growing as fast as we would like. Is it possible that deep down we're still worshiping numbers and we need to repent of that. 
Again, I'm not against numbers. I'm not against growing with numbers. But is it possible that deep down we may still be worshiping numbers? Is it possible that we as a congregation have been tolerant of sin and have failed to call members to repent of their sins because we're afraid that they'll never come back? Is it possible that we are more concerned about what people will say about us than what God will say about us? Is it possible that we have put more hope in ourselves for growing than in trusting in God's Word and in God's timing to bring life and growth to His people? Now, I bring these examples to you and to us as a congregation so that we too may consider carefully what areas we might be in need of repentance as a congregation. And you let the Lord figure that out in your heart. But we need to be thinking as a congregation about these things. Friends, repentance is not simply words. Repentance is not simply sorrow. There can be sorrow for being caught. This is not repentance. Repentance is when we are sorry for offending God, for not being caught, and not for being caught. Repentance is when we are sorry for offending God, not sorry for being caught. Repentance is when we humbly submit to God's discipline and when we mourn for the effects our sin has caused and when we commit ourselves to forsake that sin. The fragrance of repentance, the fragrance of true repentance is humility. One of the clear marks of a false repentance is the presence of anger in our hearts. How amazing that as Christ preached the same message of repentance in his ministry, the reaction of many of the Jewish leaders was that of anger towards Christ. What about us? Do we sense any anger in our own hearts as we hear this call to repent? When we do repent genuinely, we have the promise of Hosea chapter 6, the first three verses. I want to go back to that because there's something crucial that's happening there that I, I skipped in order to, to bring it back here now. There are good promises for those who return to the Lord. Whether these words are spoken by Israel or by Hosea, they're great promises for those who do return to the Lord genuinely. Look at verse 2 again. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. Now, in other words, what Israel needed was not just a band-aid or a quick fix, but a new life. Now, Israel may have demanded that God would restore them quickly. But he did not, because their repentance was not genuine. Yet, the expression, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will rise, raise us up, may be a hint, not of God's immediate restoration, but of what God has done for his people a few centuries later, when God sent his only son to pay for the price of our rebellion. Yes, God punished Israel by taking them into exile, but the story of Israel is our story. God has exiled us because of our sin. God expelled man from the garden, and God expelled his people from the land. And in Romans, we're told that the wages of sin is death. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you probably figured out that this is not a very good news that you're hearing. But this bad news is part of the bigger good news. Because the bigger good news is that despite this bad news, God still loved us and provided a way for his people to repent so he could heal them and restore them back to life. But that restoration took place ultimately in Christ. Christ was punished for our play, in our place. But on the third day, he was raised to life. Now, many people today falsely assure themselves that they must be children of God because they're good people. But the Bible says that only those who repent of their sins and who trust not in their good works, but in Christ for their salvation, only they will escape the judgment of God. Friend, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, I encourage you to respond today until it's too late. Come and talk to me at the end of the service. I would love to make sure you understand the path of salvation and how you need to respond to it. It is only because of his sacrifice for us that we can be participants in God's offer 
to repent and turn to Him. Friends, true repentance, true Christian repentance, is possible only through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jehovah's Witnesses may repent. Muslims may repent in their religious systems. But what is crucial about the Christian faith is that true repentance before God only happens through the sacrifice of Christ. Without faith in Christ, we would have no power to turn to God and away from sin. Now, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian this morning, but Hosea's call to repentance sounds strange to you, if you are not sure you really want to live your life serving this God, or that you need to pay attention to the call of repentance, if you're just not sure about these things, I fear that you may have misunderstood the gospel. I fear that you may have misunderstood the gospel and God's purpose with creation from the beginning. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, God's purpose was to make a people for himself who would live not for their own sake, but for the glory of God. And this was a call of repentance in Hosea, a call that was later echoed by John the Baptist, a call that was later echoed by Jesus who addressed the seven churches in Revelation, and how foolish it would be of us to, tr to treat lightly this call of repentance in our own lives. Beloved members of Park Hills Baptist Church, I pray. I pray that God would protect us from engaging in false repentance. I pray that God would give us a spiritual discernment to distinguish between true repentance and false repentance. And I pray that God would give us the boldness, the prophetic boldness, to confront those who deceive themselves through false repentance. Let's pray.